MDMA was not criminalized along with the other drugs in the Controlled Substances Act. But it, it was criminalized later. You know, it was synthesized almost 100 years ago. It was used as an adjective therapy in the late 70s and early 80s. It kind of busted out of the clinic, was definitely being used recreationally. And I think what occurred was basically the state representative from Texas found out that it was being used kind of in these recreational contexts. It used to be sold openly because it was unregulated. And it made it to the gay clubs. And they're like, well, we can't have that. More drugs for the, for the gay people. So to me, that's the orientation. It's like up until recently, and maybe even still, we're unified because we're against something. That's what really has unified drug policy broadly. And we're transitioning away from just being against something to now having to decide what it is that we're working for. And that's a much more contentious process. Can you engage with people who currently have power? We can argue about whether or not they should all day. I will have that conversation. But if you're talking about tangible change that affects people's lives in their short term, revolution is not just theory. It's also like infrastructure that actually catches people when they fall through the cracks of the system that's already failing them. That's the thing about drug policy that I think is where I think drug policy itself is in a bit of an existential expansion, where for a very long time it's in reaction to bad policy. It's in reaction to criminalization and prohibition and so on. I think a lot of drug policy so far has been in reaction to those systems. And we're just now barely getting a glimmer of what it would be like to have affirmative policymaking that's not reactive to the problematic aspects of what's currently occurring. Welcome to the Fruiting Bodies Podcast, an intersectional response to the mushroom boom and next wave of psychedelics. We're your hosts, Elon and Becca, co-founders of Fruiting Bodies, a Portland, Oregon-based community platform dedicated to highlighting diverse perspectives. We are here to learn together, have tough conversations, and celebrate the leaders and creatives who are helping shape a better world. This show is for earth lovers, activists, and the mushroom curious. Come for the advocacy, stay for the contagious laughter. We're glad you're here. Let's get mycelial. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Fruiting Bodies podcast. Today, we are joined by our very esteemed colleague, mentor, friend, role model, the one and only Ismail Ali. He is based in Berkeley, California. Some of you may recognize him from his advocacy work or his legal counsel advocacy and leadership at MAPS. Without further ado, this is Ismail, and we would just like to welcome you to the show, and thank you for being here with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Rebecca and Ilan. It's really sweet and super cool to be here with you two. I've been admiring Fruiting Bodies from afar, from the faraway Latin California for the last few months. So it's it's quite an honor to also have be invited to be in conversation with you two, especially in such a potent time uh, on the West Coast with drug policy and psychedelics. So thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really glad to be here. We've been super looking forward to having you here with us. I think it started out as Instagram friendship, as a lot of these things do, and got into some like juicy dialogue back and forth. And it, very quickly, we realized, oh, okay, this is like some soul friendship. We're all in this for the long haul, some like West Coast family happening. So we'll see where the conversation goes today. We have a whole list of things we want to dive into. We'll see what time allows for. Maybe this will be the first of many conversations. So, so. so to start, let's just start with the basics. Maybe we can get a little 
sort of bio and background about you, Izzy, and how you came into this work, whatever you'd like to share, and then maybe a little bit about what you do now. Sure. Thanks so much. Just to give a little bit of flavor to the audience, what actually happened is that I reached out to y'all. I felt so familiar based on your social media posting that I, I just, there was something that you posted that I disagreed with. And then I reached out being like, actually, I think that there's something else going on here. And it was just like too familiar. I was like, wait a minute. Like, I, I can't just like, you know, I have to like introduce myself first, like just because it's the internet. So I, I like, I sent this like long ass message and then was like, wait a minute. Okay. Actually, hi, I'm Izzy. Like, uh, I really like your work. I have thoughts. <laughs> you were like paragraph, paragraph. You're like, also, hi. I realize this may be overly familiar, but that's a, a sign of, you know, mutual comfortability and respect and passion. <laughs> so we were instant friends, though, because I was like, okay, we're on that level, like, because I'm ready for this. Let's let's do that. And, you know, in retrospect, I was like, oh, you totally kind of called me. And I was like, yeah, I am being a little bit unfair here. Thank you for that perspective. Like, I should bounce more things off you in the future. <laughs> yeah. And it, when we're doing like this kind of work and meeting people, I like love it when people are like, I'm not saying like handing use, oh, you know, but just like, just keeping you on your toes. And I have a couple of friends like you, Izzy, who are like, who I, when I like read a post or anytime I put anything, I'm like, oh my gosh, is this person going to say something about it? And I kind of like it. I'm like, if I, I want to be like caught up and, and like be told and it just, it just feels good. And it feels like you just, no matter what you do, you're going to have people who truly have the same intentions as you. And they want to make sure that the message is given out the right way. Yeah. So just keeping yeah. each other sharp. It's Please. super welcome. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that. It's because we care. It's because we <laughs> care. And we're like, we want, of course, there's rarely clear right answers, but you know, it's good to support one another and like dialing in what it is that we're sharing. Yeah. And holding. So yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for that. I, I guess I'll give a little bit of context about myself and what I do and where I'm at right now. So I just, again, like I really appreciate the chance to have this conversation. I, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm beaming in from Berkeley, California, Ohlone territory, also known as Wichin, East Bay, California. I was actually born and raised in Fresno in the Central Valley, which for those of you that aren't familiar is about equidistant between Los Angeles and San Francisco. It's like right, right in the middle of the Central Valley in California. You know, very many, many year old kind of industrial agriculture region, lots of migrant workers, lots of uh, people from all over the world. It's become kind of a landing pad for a lot of folks who come out to the West Coast, but frankly can't afford to end up in a place like LA or San Francisco or other places. So yeah, I was I was born there. My parents are both immigrants. My mom was born and raised in Cali, Colombia, and her and her family left in the 80s, partially as a result of uh, what was going on with respect to the cartel violence and other kind of political economic issues that were going on in Colombia at that time. And then my father was born in Delhi in India and raised in Karachi. He moved there when he was a child and then also came out to the US in the 80s for a few different reasons, but primarily to pursue education. So I was born in Fresno. I have two younger brothers. We kind of grew up there. I like to say I was like politically socialized without my consent by the post 9-11 era. I was like a young Muslim who was seeking and building a very multicultural, multiracial, multireligious community. And also kind of seeing the after effect, the aftermath of, you know, U.S. foreign and domestic policy from at that time, mostly focused on kind of conflict. But eventually, as a young person kind of pushing through angst and disillusionment, finding substances, experimenting a lot with different substances as a younger person, and kind of really seeing, starting to see through the American dream or the American kind of mythology, the story of what it is that we're doing here. It started kind of really shifting my perspective around, you know, social engagement and social change in my teen years and kind of decided 
in my early 20s after having some pretty significant experiences with psychedelics as well as other experiences with other substances and in different contexts to pursue the law, not because I was really a big fan of lawyers or the legal practice, but because I saw how the law is utilized as a tool for oppression. And what I'm really most interested in on a personal level is social and cultural change. But I recognize that the law is an element of that, certainly not the only one, but one of the ones that creates infrastructure. And I kind of landed on this place where I was like, okay, so the issue is not just that there are rules, because sometimes it is good to have some sort of structure and regulation and boundaries and so on. It's what the rules are. <laughs> so I kind of, uh, in my early 20s, decided to go to law school, pursued that as like a primary focus of education after finishing my undergrad. Shortly after I finished my undergrad, my mother passed away from cancer. She had it for 12 years. I was her primary caretaker for the year following my undergrad degree. And kind of having that experience, you know, so close also really made me think a lot about healing, psychosomatic experiences, death, life, and like the, the way that we hold illness and wellness in society. I was like the rebellious 19-year-old getting in trouble for smoking weed and being like, but mom, like cannabis is good for cancer, you know, like really in that vortex, like trying to trying to be heard in that way with varying levels of success and failure. But and ended up at the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union of Northern California in 2015, working on the drug policy project there, focusing mostly at the time on incarceration reform and kind of bail prosecution, kind of things around mass incarceration, although I was really interested by that point already in drug policy specifically, met Natalie Ginsburg, who at the time was the manager of policy and advocacy at MAPS. And her and I kind of met and finished each other's sentences and were like, okay, it's time. Like, it's time to build a policy department, you know, in this field. So Natalie and I have spent the last five years leading the MAPS policy and advocacy department, focusing for many years primarily on outward-facing advocacy. So working, you you know, in DC, um, in Vienna, at the UN, with professionals in a variety of contexts to sometimes persuade them, but overwhelmingly just educate them about psychedelics, psychedelic therapy, healing, justice, incarceration, the relationship between all these things, trauma, big part of it is talking about trauma. And in the last couple of years in the expansion, as MAPS has expanded, it's grown extremely rapidly. We can go more into that later, but it's grown extremely rapidly. The dynamics in the psychedelic field have changed tremendously in the last two to three years as a result of a number of different factors. I'm now spending a little bit more time in the mix of like ethics, organizational development, how we build out coalitions and, you know, have tangible policy change within the psychedelic space. So I can go into a lot more detail, but that's kind of the bubble of where it's at, you know, like I focused a lot, a lot at MAPS for unfamiliar folks or is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which has been around for 35 years, focusing on creating legal access to psychedelics in a variety of contexts, including medical, but not limited to medical. And I'll just say that I've spent a lot of my extra time working with clinics that are starting starting up kind of psychedelic therapy clinics like Sage Institute here in the Bay Area. And I'm really fascinated by and have spent a lot of time thinking also about the religious use of psychedelics. I work with churches, thinking a lot about this like kind of spiritual practice and the relationship between spirituality and medicine and for use. That's the spiel, at least to start. Awesome. Thank you so much, Izzy. I think our listeners are probably going to need to like go back and re-listen to that because there's so much gold already there. Just thinking like, what does it take for a young person, 
so many people ask, like, how did you get into this work? You know, and oftentimes the story like yours, where it's something deeply personal and your own witnessing of the world around you and engagement with that, that almost leads you naturally down this path. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I've carved out a role for myself in this thing that wasn't even totally there. And I think that's what's exciting about the space of psychedelics in general is it's so emergent that there's just that ongoing sense of possibility. Like you and Natalie were like, oh, there's this fertile ground. There's the need. There's the time. We're the right people in the right place. Let's see what's possible. And now five years later, a lot of us look to you and Natalie as like some of the leaders, you know, whereas it may have felt like you were coming in underneath this whole vanguard that had laid the way. I think about all the young people who are listening that where could they be in five or 10 years and what could they be helping to kind of carry forward when we all need to like slow down a little bit. (laughs) So I wonder if you could give a little context before we dive into what's happening in California specifically, a little context to what MAPS has been working on and like been able to accomplish. I know there's been kind of some big news in the recent year or so mm-hmm. even. Yeah. But yeah. What, what MAPS do for folks who aren't familiar? Yeah, I think that it's helpful to kind of understand what the organization is and how it started. So just super briefly, I mean, MAPS was started shortly after MDMA was first criminalized in the mid-1980s, which for those of you who aren't familiar with the history, it's worth looking into because MDMA was not criminalized along with the other drugs in the Controlled Substances Act, which, by the way, it's the 50th anniversary of the Controlled Substances Act, like this month, I think. But it, it was criminalized later. You know, it was synthesized almost 100 years ago. Sasha Shulgren was flagged by one of, I think, his grad students. And then Sasha and Anne kind of resynthesized it, tried it, put it in their book, uh, introduced it back to the therapeutic underground where it was used as an adjective therapy in the late 70s and early 80s. It kind of busted out of the clinic, was definitely being used recreationally. And I think what occurred was basically the state representative from Texas found out that it was being used kind of in these recreational contexts. It used to be sold openly because it was unregulated and it made it to the gay clubs. And they were like, we can't have that. More drugs for the, for the gay people. This is like 1984. And it was emergency scheduled less than two years later. And Rick Doblin was actually one of the people who was involved in organizing therapists and practitioners to testify to DEA to get it somewhere besides Schedule 1. And the DEA's own administrative law judge internally recommended Schedule 3. And the leadership of the DEA overruled it and put in Schedule 1. So like about a year or two after that happened, Rick started MAPS and was like, no, we're going to prove to them that this is medicine through their own system, through the FDA system. So a big part of MAPS's goal over the last 35 years has been to utilize the mechanisms of the institutions that exist, like the FDA, to show that these drugs shouldn't be criminalized in the way that they are, shouldn't be treated the way that they are. And I should say that although our flagship project has been focused on taking MDMA through the FDA process, and for those of you that aren't familiar, some of the big news we recently received was that our phase three results were published. So to get through to FDA approval, you have to have multiple phases of research showing safety and efficacy. And we just finished our first phase three study, which puts us just a couple years away from approval, which is really exciting news because that means that it would be available medically by prescription in the context of therapy. It's MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD as the modality that we're in the indication we're primarily working with. But although that's the flagship project, it's been really exciting to be in the policy department at MAPS, the 501c3. I should say that MAPS is a nonprofit that wholly owns a for-profit subsidiary, and it's that public benefit corporation, which is actually doing the research and development with the intention being that it will eventually provide funds that would go to the nonprofit for education and harm reduction and advocacy and other things, basically to create a self-sustaining drug policy engine. That's like the idea. MDMA powered, if you will. And... 
It's been pretty cool working on the policy side because although a lot of the work that is happening at MAPS is focused on the medical research and the medicalization process, I kind of, Natalie and I in our department have gotten to do kind of all of the other things. And we work a little bit on the medicalization side, but we, we're really, you know, we at MAPS have always been really committed to not just full decriminalization of all drug use and possession, but, you know, even sales and distribution, which puts us in the realm of looking at what legal post-prohibition use would look like. Like what would a legal post-prohibition environment would look like? And so a lot of what we've been doing in the policy side is up until about a couple of years ago, we were really focusing on making it easier for research to happen through the federal level. So whether that's funding through federal institutions, you know, kind of encouraging NIH or the National Institute of Health or large kind of institutions within the federal government to be funding and to look into this, recognizing that there may be real medical benefits to these substances in certain contexts. And in the last couple of years, there's been quite a shift, you know, after Oregon voters passed 109 and 110, there was quite a big shift as that I'm sure a lot of you have seen toward state level policy change for psychedelics, which up until, you know, things went down in Oregon was not really on the horizon. It was coming up. We had had a few conversations with some legislators and a few states had reached out to us, but even we had stayed pretty arm's length away from state or local level efforts for a couple of reasons. One, we think that state and local efforts should be pushed by the community. Like it should be pushed by the people that are there. Like we have our opinions about policy, but we're not trying to lead those efforts. And also because strategically it made sense for us to be focusing on the federal goal because that was like the approach that we were taking and can only do so much with so many people. However, in the last couple, and this may be a good segue, but in the last, I mean, really six months since last November, you know, since 109 and 110 passed, there has been a huge shift where state legislators all over the country are now saying, oh, this is a viable thing. And sure, psychedelic policy change is part of it, but also drug decriminalization is part of it. Obviously, efforts from Spore and Denver, decrimination of the cities, there's like all of these efforts that have kind of popped up to make it suddenly not that radical, or I should say less radical, maybe to be looking at really substantive policy change. So we've gotten a chance to really like dig deep into like, well, what would these ideal policies look like in these different contexts? And we kind of spend our time now, in addition to working on the federal things, also starting to provide advice, advising mostly as like kind of evidence-based scientific people on that side for what some of these policies can look like. And that's been a big part of what we've been doing. I'll say maybe lastly, just to finish answering this question, is that the other thing that MAPS has spent a lot of time doing is public education and harm reduction. And I think that NAMAPS has operated direct service kind of psychedelic harm reduction at festivals, which has been a really amazing experience has happened for quite a few years now. But we're kind of in this place where, you know, the whole field is growing up and we are now in part in dialogue with the city and county of Denver, Colorado, to provide and build out. We're in the process right now of building out a training for multi-responders. So that's law enforcement, EMS, fire, and then there's two unarmed crisis response services in Denver. So we're trying to do a whole kind of psychedelic crisis response training for them. And we're kind of in this side where we're like, okay, even if the policies themselves need to be driven by folks in the communities that they're working in, we can, because of our experience with harm reduction, with all this drug education and so on, really support with implementation. So that's been our approach, which is like, when things do pass, we're like, all right, how can we help? And that's kind of what we've been doing in Denver. That's what we've been doing a bit of in Oregon, you know, and just trying to support on the sidelines as much as we can with all of this body of evidence that is suddenly quite persuasive in the face of 50 years, literally, of hysteria and, and inaccurate reporting. So, And part of the thing that we always have to remember is like we've we've made some really good steps in history, recent history, just with everything. Everything is, is recent history 
forever in America. But like we've made these changes and sometimes our biggest fault is that we're like, okay, so now these good things are in policy and we got to stick to them. And that's how we wrote it. What we need to also remember is like, hey, this isn't what we just because what we we all sat down and wrote these things on the policy and signed them and dot them on the line. What works for us or worked for us last week may not work for us today. And we have to be so flexible and open to continuously making these changes, continuously going back to our our forms and our dotted eyes and all this and being like, okay, that's not working. And that's how it is, with, obviously, with drug policy and just the war on drugs. Like, I think everybody's common denominator is that, like, this ain't working. This shit is not working. I don't care if you're rich, black, white, whatever you are. This is not working for anybody. And I think that's like one of the biggest things. And everybody's seen people, every family, like they say, has been affected by drugs. Every family has been, whether it's been positive, a mental health change, or been unfortunate where people have been incarcerated. I think that's one of the things that when we start opening up our minds and our eyes to just how people live differently, it's all, it's all, it's all personal and we all have been definitely touched by everybody's story in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And maybe just to quickly respond to, you know, what I found out, which kind of blew my mind, what makes sense is that many pharmaceutical companies spend like one to $2 billion to get drugs through and they're making up new drugs, right? Like they're making up new things. And some of them are amazing. You know, my mom had cancer. She was on a lot of medication that kept her alive for a long time. There's real benefits to some of those processes. And as we know, because of the way healthcare works in the United States, because of the pharmaceutical lobbying industry and so on, it's also quite a complex place to be in healthcare. So it's absolutely true. And I think that there is definitely a place for that kind of medicine. And it's important to remember that that is not, it's not the end all be all of like where all healing happens. And I think that's part of the, that's part of where we're at now, where it's like medicine is one important route, but it's only a piece of it. But yeah, Elon, I totally agree. And it is, it is an interesting place to be like coming out of the underground into such a highly regulated space. I think we're all in a little bit of a, there's a, there's a constant learning curve. I'll just say that. <laughs> in general, in the splintered movement, what are we and what is our kind of common aim goal? What binds us together? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer that in the sense that I think that there's a few pieces. So really quickly, I think that, you know, in my own head, at least I think of when I look at the cannabis conversation, industry movement, whatever you want to say, I think about how there was a shift in what year was that? I guess 2015, 2016, where I feel like the conversation about cannabis shifted from being mostly led by the movement or a movement to being mostly led by an industry. And there's people who are still in the movement who would really push back against that. And there was certainly an industry before that, but that felt like a significant shift because suddenly it wasn't just people who were in the underground who were having this conversation. Yeah. So when thinking, when I think about what we're doing here, what's the point of it all? I first off try to think really big picture, like really long-term, like what is the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible that we're trying to leave for our children and our children's children and really thinking about that multi-generational approach. When I first started working in drug policy, I kind of had the sense that whatever I was working toward may not be something that I would receive all the benefits of. It might be something that we're building groundwork for our you know, future selves or future uh, descendants. And that has really put a lot of the work that I'm trying to do now into perspective and that I think kind of helps answer this question about like, well, what is going on with this movement and this conversation or what is it really? 
I like the word ecosystem a lot because I think that it properly captures the various changes that exist or the various kind of habitats, maybe we can say, that exist within this like larger system that is being built out that is currently in response to and I would say, you know, in reaction to the status quo. And that's the thing about drug policy that I think is where I think drug policy itself is in a bit of an existential expansion, where for a very long time, it's in reaction to bad policy. It's in reaction to criminalization and prohibition and so on. And I think a lot of drug policy so far has been in reaction to those systems. And we're just now barely getting a glimmer of what it would be like to have affirmative policymaking that's not reactive to the problematic aspects of what's currently occurring. So to me, that's the orientation. It's like up until recently, and maybe even still, we're unified because we're against something. That's what really has unified drug policy broadly. And we're transitioning away from just being against something to now having to decide what it is that we're working for. And that's a much more contentious process. I feel like over the last couple of years, you know, I know that there was a lot of tension. There is ongoing tension that's increasing within the movement with respect to what policy is better and how to approach it and what to do and so on. People have different theories of change, which is totally fine. And I've kind of liked it. I kind of like that there's a little bit of tension. It's kind of like what you were saying at the beginning, Elon. Like, I kind of want to really go into some of these sticky, crunchy facts because I don't know what perfect world are going to look like in five years or 10 years, much less 50. And I can imagine things and I want to imagine things together. And I think that's the thing that holds us together is the shared imagination of what is possible. But it's hard transitioning from being like, okay, we all agree that this war on drugs thing is terrible to like, well, what is the version of reality that we want to create? And how does that version of reality that we're trying to create match with or divest from the current status quo of commercial access to products or healthcare or like education or family dynamics, you know, like all city planning, you know, like, or like all of these like deeper things that affect the way we live our lives on a day to day that we can't escape from. And I think that that's part of what's happening where we're like, okay, now that we're kind of like seeing through the fog of the old drug policy regime is starting to fade, it still very much exists, but we're now starting to be able to look past it toward what we want to be. And now we're saying, oh, yeah, there's all this other stuff. There's climate catastrophe. There's police brutality. There's ongoing racism. There's all of these. There's ongoing war militarization, you know, across the U.S. and everywhere beyond our borders. So, like, it's getting harder, I think, to just define ourselves as against the drug war. I think we're having to start being like, okay, well, what are we in relation to all these other things that are harming us, that are making it more difficult for us as a people to survive and thrive? So, yeah, like when I think about, you know, the evolution of cannabis from like or the cannabis conversation from a movement to an industry, not to say that there isn't both in both and thinking about psychedelics and drug policy broadly, like we have decisions to make and we don't have to know everything now. We just have to be in ongoing, you know, emergent strategy around what are the things that we're pulling in as we move forward bit by bit. And how do we make sure we don't leave people behind as we do that? Unfortunately, though, and this is where I think some of the tensions come up is like people have different opinions about how much you work within or without the superstructure and the status quo. And I think that's where, again, people can and should disagree and can and should push back on each other. And that tension can be generative if it's done in good faith and in a way that's really like in the interest of bringing forward again, like what we think is possible. And, you know, it's a bit corny to say, but it's like, you know, we can do it together. We just have to like, you know, work through it, work through some of the other things and also come to terms with the fact that people do have different values and different perspectives about what they want to see in the future. And to me, the question then is, is it possible for all of these things to be true? 
is it possible for an ecosystem to hold many habitats? And I think the answer is yes. You know, not every ecosystem has every habitat, but there's a lot of ecosystems and a lot of habitats and they interact in different ways. Yeah. And what if all of the leaders from super local to broad in general really believed and like held reverence for that concept that we can all be here and can all be in this dance together? It gives me a lot of hope. And I also know that from real life interactions, that might be idealistic. <laughs> oh, for sure. It for sure is like, there's no way a lot of us would be doing this if we weren't somewhat idealists. And it's also, it's a little bit naive even, right? There's like an innocence that comes with being naive around, well, is it possible to create something that won't be corrupted? I don't know. I will try. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to just, you know, assume that it will happen in that way. But I really do feel like this is a, I don't love using war metaphors for many reasons, but it's sometimes it feels like a battle of imagination. You know, I have friends and family members who, when I was like marching against the war in Iraq, you know, when I was like in my early, early teens, adolescence, like after, you know, the US invaded Afghanistan and then Iraq, like there's this thing that's like, well, humans have always been at war. So we're always going to be at war. So why are you trying to end war? And I think that a lot of people can't even imagine what it would be like for humanity to not be in violent conflict with each other. And I can't always either, but that's where we're at. Like, I want to be fighting for an imagination that I have. And I am grateful to be in relationship and in community with people who also have naive imaginations and are willing to like put themselves into that version of reality and create it around them as they, as they can. And yeah, people are petty and personal and also that too. (laughs) I'm petty sometimes too. So, you know, we're people (laughs) doing our best. Yeah. And just to riff on that real quick, that's one of the other things you were asking earlier about, you know, what it is that unifies us. And I think that what I've noticed, even speaking to, you know, more conservative folks or Republicans or people all across the political spectrum and that kind of ideology It is true that, you know, compared to I'm sure what it was like, you know, some years ago, you don't really have to convince people that mental health is a thing we should be thinking about anymore. Because I think it's become obvious that whether it's through addiction or chaotic drug use or through some sort of other kind of mental health challenges folks have had, like you said, Elon, people have been affected by it in one way or another. So coming at it with problem orientation isn't as necessary. You don't have to convince people that's a thing anymore. People are like, oh, shit, this is like really not working. And to the point where it's becoming bipartisan, right? Like criminal justice reform is becoming increasingly bipartisan or multipartisan, as I like to say. It's not just Democrats and Republicans, but even shades within those groups, which comes with benefits because it's like, wow, this is allowing us to move things forward in a more cohesive way. And also comes with costs because it means that suddenly people are like in coalition with folks that they agree with on one issue or two issues and they disagree with on every other issue that they're talking. And they're like, wait a minute, can, can we do this? Is this okay? Is this something that we're able to do? And I think this to me is one of the big differences between something like, you know, an activist orientation and like an advocacy orientation or a political orientation, which I try to cycle between those three in equal amounts. And being an activist, you can be like, this is how things should be. And like you said, we don't, you know, we don't want to fight for things that we know we're going to have to change later, but we also don't know what things are going to be like in the future. So it's like, there's a value to going incremental just so you can be like, well, what can we, what are we sure about that we might want to do? And at the same time, that incrementalism totally allows all kinds of BS to slide at the same time. So there's how do we take the radical steps that allow us to move multiple pieces on a board at once, but also predict like what those effects are going to be. And I think at this stage, because we don't know what I mean, yeah, it's true that prohibition is an exception to the rule. Most of human history, people have traded these substances all over the world. 
but they didn't do it in today's political, economic, hyper-commercialized, hyper-capitalist you know, environment. So it's like, as we move things back into the above ground, it's like, what are the other considerations we need to have? What does it mean to have strange bedfellows to be partnering with different groups? And like, can we align? Is it okay to do that? Is it ethical to do that? Is it just to do that? I don't always know the answer, but like, I think that this kind of along the lines of what you're saying, like knowing which roles we're playing in these different places, like, am I acting as an activist where I'm like, this is my position, and I'm not going to change it, I will not negotiate. That's awesome. We need those people. And that only takes you so far when you're in politics, which is the art of the possible. Can you engage with people? who currently have power. We can argue about whether or not they should all day. I will have that conversation. But if you're talking about tangible change that affects people's lives in the short term, revolution is not just theory. It's also like infrastructure that actually catches people when they fall through the cracks of the system that's already failing them. That, that's what I think we need to be holding, which is that like not like there are people that benefit from the way things are. And, and even if they don't want to, I think energy is a really good one. And like, you hear about this in the conversation about climate and the just transition. We can and should probably transition to solar and other renewable energy as fast as possible. But a lot of the world is still reliant on gas and diesel. And if we can't get them all transitioned also, then they get left behind and continue to be part of the cycle of harm and oppression. So there's like this thing, it's like, what is the pace at which change can happen that also keeps people part of the conversation the whole way? It's so important. And it's a conversation that transfers to probably any field or any issue that needs to be addressed is the same thing. Because what you just said is like, it's the way that we humanize these things that we treat as issues and things we vote on and have opinions on to like, what is the practical, tangible rollout of these decisions and of these ideas and who is impacted by those things? What is the most good we can do here and the least amount of harm? And I think if we hold that perspective as we're deciding things about pacing, when to push and when to slow down, and there's like these surges and swells, and then like there's these slowdowns and even trusting that rhythm. And I feel like recently with psychedelics, it's been such a surge where so many of us in the field are, are feeling a little bit burned out and a little overwhelmed and kind of feeling the weight of just the amount of energy that's poured into it right now. And so I can feel almost like a little bit of a lull coming of like, we all just need to like <sighs> collectively exhale, gather ourselves, recharge, go off to the desert, be with our people, like absorb the good of what we're doing. And take care of ourselves so we can continue on. And I think we have to all remember that. So actually a side note, I was I was speaking with our friend Buki recently. We were talking about like this Instagram exodus of like, what if we all just got off the gram and stopped getting our news about psychedelics from the web and just talked to each other in like a more analog, gentle way. And so I'm kind of fantasizing about that, but I don't know if we can get any of us on board. Something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> One week. No, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, like yeah. we need it. It's a tool. So this is actually a good segue because we've kind of danced around it a little bit, but a lot of our listeners would probably be super keen to know about what's going on in California in regards to SB 519. And I think a lot of what you just spoke on is really relevant in terms of how this bill was shaped and why certain decisions were made when you have almost like this whole buffet of what's possible within psychedelics. I would love to hear kind of what informed this bill and, and where it's at. So the process of working on measure uh, SB 519 was pretty interesting and tied in a lot of the themes that we've been discussing today. So shortly after Oregon voters passed 109 and 110, Senator Wiener's office reached out to MAPS asking for thoughts on what would 
like a psychedelic decrim policy in California look like. And, and I should say, like, we, we didn't make that suggestion to him. He knew exactly, like, from the moment his office reached out to us, they knew what they wanted. They wanted to do psychedelic decrim. They wanted to include synthetics, including MDMA and ketamine and LSD. In fact, if you look at his very first social media post, he mentions all these substances from the very beginning. So I think that there's this misconception that MAPS like convinced them to add that, which is not true. He had always had that intention. And we were like, okay, great. It's good to see that this is broader than some of the other efforts that we had seen. But we had decided in 2019, we have a, a policy considerations document. And although MAPS and Rick and certainly our department has been really public and visible and committed to full drug decrim and even you know legal regulated access down the line for many, many, many years, It was in 2019 or so that we put out our considerations document, which was like specifically all drugs, full decrim and, you know, including distribution and sales such that there should be regulated use, uh, regulated access. So even we had to make a decision. We were like, do we want to participate in this process knowing that it's incremental only looking at certain psychedelics and looking, looking at certain drugs focusing on psychedelics? And the reason we decided to say yes, while other orgs that we're still in alignment with that we support who maybe supported it on principle, but didn't want to be involved because it didn't go far enough, which I totally understand, we decided to do it because we were like, well, we, we recognize that we do have some of the most dialed in kind of evidence. And we've thought about these questions a lot. And we'd rather make sure that this bill, which for better or worse, a lot of us are in California, it's a big state, there's a lot of influence here, that this bill could be as good as it could possibly be even though it doesn't do what we all wanted, which is full drug decrim of all drugs. We want people to be stopped being criminalized for what they put in their bodies, period, full stop. So it, there was a harm reduction, political harm reduction approach here. We were like, well, we want this bill to be better than it would be if we weren't involved. And we thought that we could contribute. So that was part of it. The other big thing that's worth mentioning is that the state of California, like many other states, has a funding freeze for things that aren't related to COVID. The reason that's relevant is because this bill, 519, decriminalizes the personal use and possession of the named substances. It creates a kind of review panels similar-ish to what's going on in Oregon, but to develop kind of pre-vet to, to think through some of these regulatory questions that would be relevant in like a future regulated legal access situation. It removes the requirement for a California state-funded drug and alcohol programs to talk only about abstinence. We really want there to be harm reduction education put into drug and alcohol rehabilitation programs. And right now there's a prohibition against that in the state of California. So we're removing that prohibition that's not talked about as much. And then the other thing is to fully legalize and decriminalize and legalize substance analysis so people can do substance analysis of drugs that you know might be tainted, might be poisoned, um, which is the case of a lot of substances. Slightly less so with psychedelics, but not nothing. Ketamine and MDMA, certainly more so with other drugs like heroin, cocaine, and others, methamphetamine. But we did that because these are all things that cost the state little to no money and could be done, could be implemented as groundwork for future all-drug decrim. Because these are things that we knew we're going to need down the line. If we had had our dream bill, we would have put money for Unarmed crisis response, that's one of the biggest things, like an entirely well-funded state-level unarmed crisis response, staffed like the way law enforcement is, like literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people in every city, 24 hours, like that's the dream. PSAs, public harm reduction education available. You know, what's one thing to do it publicly, it's another thing to put it in schools. What we learned in the process is that it's one thing to say, okay, we're not requiring abstinence-only education, but it would have been a much different political if to say, here's your new curriculum, you have to teach the kids. We're going to save that for later down the line, you know, but that's on our mind. You know, how do you teach good drug education? 
And then, of course, like actual state funded resources. So like wraparound social services, top to bottom, you know, like they're, like everything that you need. And I think one thing that Oregon did really well with 110 and the Drug Policy Alliance and the local advocates there did really well with 110 is make sure that it's not just decrim, it's decrim and treatment and support. So I would love to see like safe consumption kind of approaches for psychedelics or safe consumption for all drugs, really. But these are all things that we would have loved to see, but were not possible within the constraints of this particular bill. And we asked, you know, ourselves and a number of other advocates made sure to ask Senator Weiner early on, and he has publicly said repeatedly that they're going to go for all drug decrim later down the line in the state of California. That's a thing. And um, I don't know when this is going to get released, but just today, on with, we're in mid-June right now, it, it was just announced that Cori Bush and another representative whose name I can't remember at this exact moment, both are going to introduce a bill supported by Drug Policy Alliance and other orgs to fully decriminalize the possession of all drugs at a federal level. Like that happened today, this morning. So it's now, you know, in the state of Massachusetts, they're talking about it. In other states, like it's not so radical to think that there's another paradigm here. So Although 519 isn't exactly what, you know, it's not like the model bill that MAPS would have written necessarily. It has a lot of the elements that we really like, including full removal of penalties for possession and use of these certain substances. And it lays the groundwork that we were able to lay with the constraints that existed for future efforts to occur. So where it's at now, I mean, it just a couple of weeks ago made it through the California State Senate. We made it through all the committees, made it through the Senate, passed through. I think we're in the next couple of weeks or so going to be getting heard in assembly committees. So in the same one, so it'll be heard in the assembly, public safety, assembly health, then we'll go through appropriations, has to go through the assembly floor, and then it'll have to get signed by the governor. So there's quite a few steps still. It's plausible. I think, you know, we're we're definitely encouraged and enthusiastic about where things are at. And this is a big learning process because this is where the tensions come up between are we activists or are we advocates or are we, you know, trying to negotiate political stuff? Thankfully, both because MAPS is a 501c3 and has to limit our involvement and also because there's a number of really solid lobbyists that are working in coalition with other folks that were around. There has been quite a strong effort from, you know, the senator, Senator Wiener himself, as well as others to really educate the California state legislature on some of these issues, whether or not it passes this year, who knows, maybe next year, the funding freeze will be raised, maybe we can get all of the well funded state programs of our dreams down the line. That's like, that's the dream. So but it's one step at a time. And it's very emergent still, you know, it's really hard to predict what will happen, because there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Yeah, that is a dream. That is the dream. And that would lead, I know we're almost out of time here, but that actually leads us right into the final question that we ask everybody. And this is like, whatever you, it doesn't have to be about psychedelic medicine. It could just be about you, Izzy, in your life. But the thing that I like to ask is, what is your dreamy dream? Like, where do you see yourself like the happiest? And be five years, 10 years, it could be tomorrow. It could be like after you get off this call with us. Like, where do you see yourself your dreams? So I was raised, like I said, with my mother's Colombian and I was raised with a very like this like very like multicultural environment where like that the question was like, how do you help people feel like they belong? What what are the conditions that people need so they feel like they belong in any given place or in an environment or whatever? And I think in, in that process, I, I spent a lot of time around family and friends who were hosting parties. My parents really loved hosting gatherings. 
New Year's parties and food and dancing. And we were Muslim, so there's no alcohol, right? But we'd go hard on the chai all night. <laughs> and and I think when I'm thinking about like what's the the dreamy dream, it's um it's really places where people can celebrate without reservation. I want to be able to celebrate without reservation. And I feel like with my own experience with psychedelics and my community and the blessings that I've had and experience and the blessings and privileges that have around me, I feel like I'm I've started to tap into what it feels like for me personally to celebrate without reservations, just be like, I'm here to experience this joy and love and possibility within myself. And I guess my dreamy dream is that everyone can do that. Like, and I think that's one of the things I love about and why I'm so passionate about working with psychedelics, because I think that even in the conditions that someone might be in, they do offer a window into like that glimmer of possibility of what true, you know, unadulterated celebration, inner celebration might look like, whether it's like, wow, you got here and your ancestors are real proud that you made it to where you're at. Or wow, like we've got a lot of work to do, but like I'm not going to do it unless I'm feeling nourished. And for me to be nourished, I need to celebrate where we're at. And like I want that to be available for people. And I think that this whole conversation that we're having today, it's like psychedelics can give you the glimmer. They can like, you know, give you line of sight into the horizon, but the rest of the infrastructure that needs to exist is still being built. So I just, I hope that we can build that infrastructure together. So then when people, you know, that people don't have to check out of their daily lives to experience that kind of joy, that they can just be in that, even if they're working, even if they're like have responsibilities and like life to live and bills to pay and whatever, like that's part of where we're at for now. And it would be really nice for people to just be able to like celebrate with one another with that level of like freedom and that, yeah, that level of liberty to be their own full selves, like even beyond the imagination that they think they have right now. I don't know if that's too heady of an answer, but <laughs> that, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, and my, my other dreamy dream is that we get to hang out in person maybe down the line. Everything's been so digital, but it's been nice to start giving real hugs. <laughs> Yes. Say the word. We'll make I'm, it happen. I'm there. <laughs> uh, Izzy, it's been such a pleasure. Never enough time. We'll look forward to our next conversation. But thank you so much for your leadership, for your friendship, for holding the vision. We'll hold it when you're discouraged. You hold it when we're discouraged and we'll all be in it together. So uh, thanks so much for being here. And we will put links to everything in the show notes for folks who want to connect with you. And uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. Lots of love. Thank you so much really appreciate you both lots of love that's the end of today's episode there's still so much to talk about to get involved or become a supporting member please visit fruitingbodiescollective.com you can also find us on instagram at fruitingbodiesco special thank you to our season two sponsors dr bronner's mimosa therapeutics and psychedelics today until next time be like the mushrooms Stay connected, transform dead things, and grow on your own timeline.